Amen. Thank you for the music this morning, and happy Sabbath to each one of you. It's a blessing to be here again in Hendersonville. I grew up not too far from here, just up the road in Portland, so this is a little bit like coming home for me. So before we start, I will offer a brief word of prayer to ask the Lord to be with us during the next few moments of our worship time. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak through me as we reflect on the way you have led us as a people. So I pray that you would bring clarity of thought to my speaking and that each one of us would hear the Spirit speaking to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today is a special Sabbath throughout the world church. Many in our church are reflecting on the fact that three days from now marks the 175th year since Jesus went into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary on October 22. And in fact, at the William Miller Farm this weekend, there's a a big commemoration that has taken place where many Adventists from around the country and even around the world have gathered to reflect on the meaning of the Second Advent Movement that really took off in the 1830s and 40s, of which our church has carried on that torch. And in the scripture reading that we read this morning, that scripture reading, the parable, has an application to the Millerite movement. Those who were a pure group of people, they were virgins, and they had their lamps, and the lamp, according to Psalm 119.105, is the word of God, and based on the study of the scripture, that lamp gave light to their path, and as they studied the scripture, they saw that the scriptures from the prophecies pointed to the return of Jesus, and based on their study of scripture, they went forth to meet the bridegroom. And so we, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, have carried on the torch of the movement that began back then. I want to reflect over the next few minutes on some high points or highlights of that movement. And the title for the message today is The Midnight Cry. Now, in verse 5 of the parable that we read, we, we see in that verse, it says, At midnight a cry was made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And that represents the climax of the Millerite movement. And we're going to see how that is so. Here we are on October 19, 2019, 175 years since the Great Disappointment. And if you were to ask any of the faithful believers who lived through that disappointment, who went on to form the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if time would have lasted another 175 years, nobody then would have believed it. Which makes us wonder, why are we still here? Have you ever reflected on that thought? Why are we still on planet Earth 
175 years after God raised up a movement to first proclaim the second coming. Now, I want to read to you a statement. This is from Great Controversy, page 464, written by Ellen White. And this is a prophecy of what is yet to take place. This statement reads, Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. So I want to give you a prophetic challenge or a foretaste of what this church will look like in the future. Listen, friends, the future of Adventism is not a declension into worldliness where Adventism loses all of its relevance in this present world with respect to the message that God has given us. The future of Adventism is a revival of primitive godliness as has not been seen in Christianity since the time of the Apostles. And if we were honest with ourselves, if we look at the power that the apostles had and the spirit that was in their lives and of how they lived fully and completely for God, we would be honest with ourselves and we would say, we are not yet that people. And if we wonder why Jesus delays in heaven above, we might look to ourselves and see where some of the problem lies. Now, it's interesting where she talks about how people will separate themselves from the church, those churches in which the love of this world is supplanted, love for God and his word. That's referring to the churches outside of our faith where we have brothers and sisters in Christ of other denominations. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the the trend in the history of the Protestant denominations outside of Adventism. Up until 1965, the Protestant churches outside of Adventism continued to grow. But ever since 1965, there has been a steady decline in many of the mainline Protestant denominations. We're talking about the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, I have family members um, that are part of those denominations. And you go to those churches and there are these huge, large buildings and there's lots of empty seats. And in many ways, we look at Christianity in this world today and it reminds me a little bit about who I'm going to spend some time talking about this morning, and that's William Miller. William Miller was someone who was born into a Baptist family, but he became a deist, and a deist is someone who believes that God exists, but he largely stays out of the affairs of men. Now, Christianity isn't quite like that today, but Christianity, if you were to look at it, there's this the spirit that seems to flow through Christianity, where Christianity views God as someone who is up in heaven, and he largely caters to how we would desire God to be. 
So rather than Christianity living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Christianity is looking in many ways today to try to find relevance to the culture in which we live in. And by trying to find relevance to the culture that we live in, Christianity is in many ways, and I'm speaking about Christianity in general, not the Seventh-day Adventist Church by and large here, but Christianity is largely losing its power because it no longer is living by every word from the mouth of God. And God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist movement to be a light in this earth where God would have a people still on this earth who would live by the Bible and the Bible alone that we would live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And as we study that word, as we look in our scripture reading, not only does the parable of the ten virgins apply to the Millerite movement, it applies to God's end-time people who still are a pure people, who have an eager desire to take their lamps, known as the word of God, and to receive the light that God gives to us from that word. And as we study the scripture, it leads us to the understanding that Jesus is coming again and that his purpose is to come soon. That is why we exist as a Seventh-day Adventist people. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on William Miller. Here we are three days away from the 175th anniversary. You know, William Miller was not necessarily someone that you would have ever predicted would have been used by God to start a movement that would shake all of America. William Miller was, had humble beginnings. He was born in 1782 to a, a a family on a farm, and he grew up on a farm. And interestingly, he actually joined the United States Army. He became a lieutenant. He was part of the War of 1812. He fought in the Battle of Plattsburg, which interestingly took place on September 11 of 1814. So there's not only one date of significance for September 11 in American history. And William Miller saw some of his friends die on the battlefield near him, and it did lead him to wonder, why me? Why did I survive, and why did they not, why did they not survive while I did? He continued on into his um, life after the military as a deist, and largely felt that Christians were people who were under the influence of foolish thinking. Well, for social reasons, he still attended church. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Sometimes we wonder about some of our friends or family who may be coming to church, and we look at how they're living outside of church. But, you know, God's Spirit will speak to us when we come to the place where he's going to be at. And so William Miller, as he was coming to church every Sunday to a Baptist church, complained to his mother that the sermons were boring. And his mother had an idea, because what ended up happening is, and this can sometimes happen in our churches too, where a pastor has more than one church in his district, sometimes the pastor wouldn't be there, and so when he wasn't there, the elders would read printed sermons, and you know, I'll admit, if you just listen to someone reading a sermon that they haven't actually developed on their own, 
it may not be the most interesting thing to listen to. And so his mother had the idea, hey, when the pastor's not here, maybe William can read the sermon so that he will be more interested in the church service. So he actually agreed to do so, even though he was a self-avowed deist. And after a few times of reading the sermon, it just so happened that one particular Sunday, he was reading a sermon from Isaiah chapter 53 about Jesus, who was the lamb led to the slaughter, how he opened not his mouth. And William Miller came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he was overcome with emotion, and he could not finish the sermon, and he had to sit down. You know, I actually appreciate it. Now, I'm not expecting this to happen every time I hear a sermon, but I appreciate it when the speaker is so deeply moved by the Spirit of God that their heart is touched by the, by the Spirit that has moved upon them to give the message that they are giving. Church shouldn't be so lifeless that we don't feel the moving of the Holy Spirit and that we don't come under conviction. And William Miller came under conviction and he gave his heart to the Lord and he started studying the Bible for himself and he says of his study of Scripture that he found through the study of Scripture, he found in Jesus a dear and true friend. Now, I want to challenge each one of you here today. When's the last time, I hope it's all the time, but sometimes I find that sometimes even in our churches, people aren't spending time in the Word and connecting with the Lord. So I have to ask you, when's the last time that you were so connected to the Lord through your study of Scripture that you knew that Jesus was speaking to you as your friend? That was William Miller's experience. And as William Miller continued to study and as he continued to read, he came to an understanding of Bible prophecy. And this was very interesting to him because in the church he grew up in, he did not hear the proclamation of Bible prophecy. And so when he started studying, he found that there was a Bible prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, that when he connected it to the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and through an understanding of chronology, through um, the canon of Ptolemy, he came to an understanding that the 2300-day prophecy, which is a day for a year, would end sometime around the year 1843. And this was about 25 years before 1843. And so William Miller was like, wow, my best and dearest friend is going to be returning to this earth to take me home in 25 years. Now, I'll have to say this as a Seventh-day Adventist, as someone who has grown up in the church. Sometimes when I am around other members when we talk about the coming of Jesus, rather than the response from members eliciting thankfulness and joy, it actually elicits the idea of fear and being scared because then we start talking about, oh no, we're going to have to go through the time of trouble and it's going to be so horrible and so scary. And I have to ask you the question, if you really love Jesus, shouldn't you be excited about the idea of Jesus coming soon? 
William Miller, when he, through his own study, came to an understanding, in his mind he thought that Jesus was coming in 1843 as his initial understanding, he was actually thrilled by the thought. Now, he continued to study, and he didn't want to just go out and share this right away because, you know, nobody's ever said this before. And he wanted to make sure that what he had come to discover was actually accurate. And so he spent a number of years sharpening his understanding. And furthermore, he was like, nobody would ever listen to me. I'm a a farmer. I'm not even a trained preacher. You know, Ellen White has this statement where she says at the end of time that the message when it goes forth under the power of the latter rain will not be carried so much from this understanding that you've gained from the study and literary institutions, but through the unction of the Holy Spirit. And William Miller is an example of that. Now, it's good to have training institutions, but there's something to be said for the Holy Spirit. And I might add, when's the last time you've seen a PhD scholar from some of the institutions outside of our church study themselves, or excuse me, study themselves into the faith through their PhD methodology. You don't see it very often because there's something to be said for the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's good to be trained in an academic way. I'm not against that, but I don't find people outside of our faith being led by the Holy Spirit through their academic methodology alone. So William Miller sharpened his study. He spent time studying these things. And sometime in the late 1820s and into the early 1830s, this overwhelming conviction came upon his heart. Share what you have studied and tell it to the world. Tell it to the world. You have an understanding that Jesus is coming soon, and the only people who know that you believe this are your family and maybe a few close friends. Why aren't you telling this to the world? And William Miller argued with God. I don't know if you've ever argued with God before about a conviction, but William Miller got into an argument with God. God, they're not going to listen to me. I'm a humble farmer. I don't have literary training. I'm not a well-known preacher. Who would listen to a humble farmer get up front and say that the world is going to end in a few years? I'll probably be laughed at. Why would I do that? And he continued to have this conviction. And finally, it happened to be on a Saturday morning of all days. He didn't even know the truth of the Sabbath. On a Saturday morning... He made a bargain with God. Okay, God, I'll go if somebody asks me, but I'm not going to invite myself. So if you send someone to invite me to preach, I'll go and do it. And he smugly comforted himself that nobody would ever ask him to preach anyway. Well, unbeknownst to him, his nephew was already on the way. And about 30 minutes after he made that deal with God, his nephew, who lived about a couple of hours away, had been journeying down, and they wanted him to come back to speak the next day to their church to share what he had been studying. So there's this knock on the door. They open the door. There his nephew is. And his nephew makes the request, and William Miller knew 
at that very moment that this was the call of God. And, of course, he was a human being, and he stormed out of his house into the nearby maple grove. And if you've ever been to the William Miller farm, it's not far from there, and then Ascension Rock is just through the maple grove on the other side. And he spent 30 minutes wrestling with the Lord. But after that 30 minutes, he had gone into that maple grove as a farmer. But when when he came back, he came out of that maple grove as a preacher. And William Miller became one of the most effective preachers for the second coming message that the world has ever seen. William Miller went the next day to share with his family and they were so and the church of the next town over and they were so convicted that they asked him to stay the whole week and before William Miller knew it he was receiving so many invitations he couldn't keep up with them and so for the next 9 years he was preaching week after week after week largely through smaller churches in the New England territory but in the year 1840 there was a pastor in Boston, Massachusetts by the name of Joshua Himes. Some of you have probably heard his name. Joshua Himes was a go-getter. He would be like someone that you would describe as a campaign manager for a presidential candidate. So he was someone who knew how to get things done and how to be effective at getting things done. He invited William Miller to come preach in Boston, and after he heard the message, he was so blown away by what he heard, and by, the time, by this time it's 1840. We're just three years now from 1843. He comes up to William Miller after he hears the message, and he says, do you really believe the message that you are preaching? And William Miller says, of course I do. Why else would I have sacrificed my life these last nine years to be preaching week after week after week, largely away from my family? And Joshua Heim said, will you allow me to help you get this message out in a much more effective way? And from that point on, the movement took off. Now, there were some other things that started to take place. Josiah Litch, another Millerite preacher through the Year Day Principle, came to an understanding that the Ottoman Empire would fall on August 11, 1840, based on the year-day principle where, where there was a 391-year, 15-day prophecy found in Revelation 9.15. Ellen White comments on this in Great Controversy 3.34 and 3.35 and says that the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. And when people saw, wow, if they're correct on this, then they're probably correct on the 2300 days as well. And so that allowed the movement to take off like wildfire. Then we started having newspapers or news magazines, whatever you want to call them, called the um, the Signs of the Times, the Midnight Cry, other similar papers that were distributed throughout the cities of the Northeast. And the Millerite movement took off like wildfire. Estimates um, placed the movement at somewhere around 50 to 100,000 believers by the time of 1844. And considering that there were 17 million people in the United States, that's a pretty high percentage. And people truly believed that Jesus was coming soon. Now, 
just to kind of summarize where the movement went from there, of course, they believed that Jesus was going to come around the year 1843, and that calendar year ended around March 21 of 1844. So they had what was known as the early disappointment, and this is where the parable of Matthew 25 enters into this period known as the delay or the tarrying time, where the Millerites didn't exactly know what was happening. They still had a belief in the imminent return of Christ, but they couldn't necessarily understand the delay. And William Miller himself didn't understand why Jesus hadn't come by the end of the biblical year of 1843, which concluded on March 21 of 1844. And so they kind of entered into this period of delay. Well, around that time, another Millerite preacher by the name of Samuel Snow started studying the principles of the feasts and so forth, and he saw that there were the spring festivals and the fall festivals, and he put together a a brilliant study where he showed that when you look at the spring festivals, type met antitype on the very day. So for example, Jesus is the Passover lamb as the antitype, and Jesus as the Passover lamb died on the very day of Passover Friday. And then his body was the unleavened bread that was broken and rested in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he was resurrected on the the very day of what was called the the offering of first fruits or the wave sheaf offering. And then 50 days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early rain. So Samuel Snow says, it stands to reason, or it stood to reason, that if the spring festivals were, were fulfilled on the very day, It just so happens that the Day of Atonement is part of the fall festivals, and wouldn't the Day of Atonement, wouldn't type me antitype on the very day? Furthermore, he said, when you look at where we are in this movement, a day equals a year, and half of the year would be night, and half of the year would be day, and halfway through the night, or at midnight, there will be an announcement to the day of the coming of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. So in August of 1844, which was just about halfway through the first six months of the new year, you have an evening and a morning being a day, according to Scripture. Halfway into the six months of this time of delay, Samuel Snow shows up at a Millerite camp meeting. This camp meeting took place from August 12 to 17 of 1844. And as the story goes, Joseph Bates, most of you have probably heard his name, was preaching a message trying to encourage the Millerite believers in the soon coming of Jesus, but he was giving a message that was kind of like something you've heard a hundred times and it wasn't really moving the dial a whole lot. And during the sermon, Samuel Snow came into the campground on horseback And he proceeded to come into the tent where Joseph Bates was preaching, and he sat on the front row next to a Millerite believer, a woman, and he said, I have new light for this camp meeting. And the sister who had been listening to Brother Bates speak stood up and said, Brother Bates, it's too late for us to be hearing the same old truths. We have a brother who has new light here. Now, as our understanding of these camp meetings go, they were a bit informal. It wouldn't be like today. If that were to happen today, people would be like, wow, what a rude person. Um, But it was kind of an audacious thing to do anyway. 
And Brother Bates, to his credit, sat down and allowed Brother Snow to come up and speak to the congregation. Now, as the story goes, there was a lot of different dynamics going on in that tent. There were, there were even some fanatics who were there who were making loud noises and causing trouble and stirring things up. And as Brother Snow set forth his arguments and his reasoning, he went through very clearly, showing that the spring festivals were fulfilled on the very day. And he said, we are living just before the fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy when it comes to its conclusion, not in the spring of the year, but the Day of Atonement is in the fall of the year. We are in August, and according to the calendar that the Jews follow, the Day of Atonement in 1844 this year is October 22, which is simply two months and ten days away. And at that point, that room was filled with hushed silence. And everybody was under deep conviction that this was the correct understanding of the 2300-day prophecy and of why there had been a delay. And as historians describe this time, the movement at this point is known as the seventh month movement because the Day of Atonement was on the 10th day of the seventh month, which was October 22. So this became, became known as the seventh month new movement. And historians describe that period of time of about 10 weeks as the movement taking off like a tornado. Joseph Bates describes this, and this is what he says, there was light given and received there, sure enough. And when that meeting closed, the granite hills of New Hampshire rang with a mighty cry, behold the bright bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. As the stages and railroad cars rolled away through the different states, cities, and villages of New England, the rumbling of the cry was still distinctly heard. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Christ is coming on the tenth day of the seventh month. Time is short. Get ready. Get ready. Then he says, who does not still remember how this message flew as it were upon the wings of the wind, men and women moving on all the cardinal points of the compass, going with all the speed of locomotives and steamboats and rail cars, freighted with bundles of books and papers wherever they went, distributing them almost as profusely as the flying leaves of autumn. You know, they believe that Jesus was coming again. And of course, we've come to understand the mistake in their reckoning. They were correct about the date. They were wrong about the event. Jesus went from the holy place into the most holy place. And as Revelation 10 describes, the message was sweet in their mouth. It was bitter in their belly. But the only way that God could bring attention to the fact of what Jesus was doing in heaven was to allow them to not fully see what was happening. Because if they were just saying, Jesus is moving places from the holy place to the most holy place, the world would not have listened. But God designed that in order for this Advent movement to kick off, there must be a worldwide message that would shake the world. And in fact, if you look at what was happening during the year of 1844, there was a presidential election. Do you remember who ran for president that year? Oh, nobody does. But if you look back at history, the newspapers, the front page coverage, you had the presidential election in one section, and you had coverage of the Millerite movement on the other section. And you know what, friends? Someday soon, that's going to happen again in the Advent movement. 
And I look at our movement today, and, you know, I look at people in our church who are more concerned with either supporting or opposing whoever the president happens to be that's in power, whether it's the current president now or when we were in the previous president before that. And I'm reminded of what Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. You know, we have something better to fight for than for political causes. What we are fighting for is to see Jesus come in our lifetime. You know, Ellen White makes the statement of the Millerite movement. Of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel that holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. Now, we know the story. October 22 came and went. Obviously, Jesus didn't come. And I want to read to you the, the testimony of Hiram Edson, who lived through that disappointment. We confidently expected to see Jesus Christ and all the holy angels with him, and that his voice would call up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the ancient worthies and near and dear friends which had been torn from us by death. Our expectations were raised high, and thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told twelve at midnight. The day had then passed, and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawned. You know, you don't cry all night unless you lose someone really close to you. These people cried all night that Jesus didn't come. And I mean, I hate to say it, but sometimes I'm around Adonists who almost seem relieved that there doesn't seem to be signs that would suggest that Jesus is coming sometime soon. This was a movement raised up by God who in their minds, they were ready for Jesus to come and they expected him to come that day. And when they woke up October 22, 1844, that was the happiest day of their life because they expected to see Jesus in the clouds. And I want to challenge you that we as a movement, if we expect to see Jesus come in glory and to be ready to meet him, that we should have the quality and the character of the faithful Millerites who gave up everything to be ready for Jesus to come that day. You know, Revelation 10 describes the great disappointment, but it closes by saying that we are to prophesy again to many nations, kingdoms, tongues, and peoples. And that includes now the third angel's message because the Millerites gave simply the first and the second angels. You know, it's interesting, William Miller did not accept all of the advancing light that came after that disappointment. We're told that those who were close to him, probably Joshua Himes, hid, hid him from accepting the Sabbath truth. For example, we're told that if he ex- had accepted the Sabbath truth, the Lord would have renewed his energy and strength, and he would have been translated without seeing death, that he made a mistake similar to Moses, but that angels guard the precious dust of his grave. 
You know, I want to read to you just a couple of things, and we're going to wrap this up. So we're, we're going to be done within the next five minutes here. This is a statement from a retired theologian who now happens to be my father-in-law. He wrote this before he was my father-in-law. His name is Dr. Gerard Domstieg. Taught at the seminary for many years in the church history department. This is what he says. Many of the problems in the church today are the result of not knowing what it means to live in the great antitypical day of atonement. Few even among believers seem to know the science of salvation looks constantly to Jesus and experiences the true meaning of how to afflict the soul so that God can form us into his image, fully reflecting Jesus. We hear much talk today about the necessity of change. Some eagerly introduce new forms of worship with new types of music. Constantly there is the cry for more relevance. Waves of new Bible translations flood the market, each claiming to be the most relevant. The effectiveness of preaching is questioned, and music, dialogue, and drama occupy an increasingly important part of church services. More and more ministers and church members hesitate to address church standards. A greater laxness than ever results in an increasing number of young people drinking, smoking, using drugs, wearing jewelry, and otherly worldly attire, and viewing worldly movies and videos. Few lead out in the biblical spirit of true reform centered around the scriptures, focused on the life of Jesus, so believers can reflect him more fully. Our contemporary situation reveals the great urgency of recapturing the spirit of the early Adventists. Unless today's believers rediscover the true meaning of the great disappointment and also of its abundant blessings, they will not know what direction to give to the remnant church and its mission. This failure could lead to a shift of direction that God never intended. Now, I want to finish with one last statement, because what I'm going to mention here is this. The midnight cry of the parable of Matthew 25 in its initial application was when Samuel Snow gave the message that set the date for October 22. Now, the end-time application for that parable, the midnight cry, is the loud cry when the latter rain comes down from heaven and the earth is lightened with the glory of God. And if you study when the latter rain is poured out, it's when the sins of Babylon reach heaven, which is when the Sunday law is passed. So that's what we're looking for in the future. But I want to read you a statement from Early Writings, page 14, that give us some understanding for the relevant still today even of the great disappointment of the midnight cry movement. This is early writings, page 14. This is Ellen White actually experiencing her first vision. While I was praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell upon me and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world but could not find them when a voice said to me, look again and look a little higher. At this I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. On this path the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. That's the Millerite movement, friends. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. Here's the amazing thing to me. The Millerite movement and the movement that set the date for October 22, 1844, which ultimately shows us that Jesus moved from the holy place to the most holy place, is the light that God has designed to shine light on the feet of the pathway 
pathway of the second advent movement all the way to heaven and we are to keep our eyes on Jesus who is at the head of the path but behind us is the light that goes before us. We are to not shun the light that was that came before us that started this movement. You know, sometimes I hear people disparage the Millerites as being simplistic and of having various issues and things of that nature, but I'll tell you this. Find me people in the church that have the same spirit and the zeal as that movement, and I will take that any day in Adventism. That is what we need. Those who so were in love with Jesus that they were looking for him to come and they knew from the scripture the coming of Jesus. And so, listen, friends, God has given us light that is pointing us all the way to heaven. If you no longer believe in the Millerite movement as being led of God and of Jesus moving from the holy place to the most holy place in 1844, sad to say, you have fallen off the path that God has set up. Here we are 175 years later, and what God would say to his people today is, remember how God has led, but keep your eyes on Jesus. It reminds me of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We have a race set before us, and Jesus has run that race for us, and we are to look to him. And as we are to look to him, and as we keep our eyes on Jesus, this is what will allow God to develop from his current Seventh-day Adventist church, this movement that God has raised up, the 144,000, who God will point as his tokens to the onlooking universe, and he will say, I believe someday soon, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Listen, friends, it's been 175 years, but the message of Adventism, the truths of the three angels' messages, of a Christ-centered message that points to the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now as our great high priest, waiting to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords, is still the message of relevance for this day. We are not going to win the the world to Jesus by compromising this message into an irrelevant message that does away with what the Bible says. We will be a faithful people on this earth that God will use when we continue to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I believe, as that quote said, there will be a time sometime soon when there will be a revival of primitive godliness in this church that has not been witnessed since apostolic times. And my challenge to you and to me today is that may we be that people who God uses to be part of the finishing of this work here on this earth. Amen. At this time, I would invite you to turn to our hymn of response. This is another early Adventist hymn as we sang Watch Ye Saints for our opening hymn. This song also comes from that time and it makes reference to the parable of the ten virgins. We know not the hour. And as we sing this song, I just encourage you to allow the Spirit to speak to your heart. If there's anything in your heart or life that's keeping you from being ready for Jesus to come, Now is the time to surrender that to him. Amen. So let's stand and sing our closing hymn. You know, just before we close with prayer, it's it's amazing to me. It's sad, actually. Frank Belden, who wrote that song, he was the nephew of Ellen White. He actually lost his faith. You know, it's not enough to be the nephew of the prophet. It's not enough to have parents who 
are faithful, I need and you need a walk with Jesus. You know, I'm looking forward to the day when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise. I'm looking forward to seeing my, my dad come up out of that grave. You know, Pastor Estrada over here, he was part of my father's funeral message. And, you know, I, I look out and see people that I've known through the years. You know, one of these days, Jesus is going to come. We know not the hour, but we want to be faithful and we want to have our own walk and our own experience to have our lamps trimmed and burning so that we're not relying on anybody else's experience but our own walk with Jesus. Amen. So let's close. Father, we thank you for this moment in time on this Sabbath day that we've had to reflect on the commemoration of 175 years since Jesus went to the most holy place. And as the, as the parable tells, you actually predicted that there would be a delay in your coming. And here we are 175 years later. But Lord, someday soon, that midnight cry is going to sound. And this sleeping church is going to wake up. Lord, I pray that we would have that oil in our lamps so that even now we would have a zeal to share Jesus to a lost and dying world with the good news that Jesus is coming again. May we never lose that message as a Seventh-day Adventist people, and may we be found faithful when he comes. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.